Everyone who has ever taken a shower has had an idea. It's the person who gets out of the shower, dries off, and does something about it that makes the difference. Nolan Bushnell. Words from the founder of today's brand exploration. Join us as we learn from the rise and fall of Atari on today's Straight Shot Marketing Podcast. Welcome to Straight Shot. Marketing is everywhere. It's around your life. From what you eat to what you wear and where you go. It is a vital part of any and all business. Let's discuss the world of marketing and business as it influences everyday life with the staff of Atlanta Marketing Agency, Reformation Productions, and guests as they give it to us straight. Get ready. Take aim. Steady. Welcome to Straight Shot. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are diving into another of history's great brands. You either grew up with it or at least know it as a legend of industry. Today, we're talking about Atari. Now, I am Generation X, so I grew up with Atari. We didn't have what kids have today. We had dots. We played with dots. Joystick, button, and dots. I thought it was and, like a can with a string <laughs> attached to it. We, I'm not that old. Mm. Uh, and, but we had to use our imagination to visualize our game experiences uh, as if they were real. Today, kids, what kids play look very close to real life with all the CGI and everything. They don't have to use their imaginations um, anymore. No, but uh, and they can also they can save and continue. That's cheating. Cheating. When I was a kid. When you die, you, you die. You died, that's it. You started all over again from the beginning. There's no such thing as respawning. No. Well, I am a zenial, which is that little tiny wedge between Generation X and Generation yes. Y. Um, so I'm like, I'm a 90s kid is basically what that boils down to. So I grew up with Nintendo NES. Uh, well, today we're going to talk a little bit about both. Okay, good. Mostly Atari and how the famous Atari VCS was the console that home video gaming as an industry was built upon. Well, let's get to it then and All see right. if you know what kind of marketing magic we can pull from their story today. Okay, so Atari was incorporated in 1972 by Ted Dabney and Nolan Bushnell you'll recognize their iconic logo. It was designed by George Opperman and drawn by Evelyn Seto. 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 Whatever. It's fabulous. <laughs> and while some refer to the design as the Fuji, which is a mountain in Japan, that is not relative to the intended design. To begin with, Atari was an American company. The silhouette of the design was intended to look like an A for Atari. So I got it on one of my shirt today. So Atari. And the three lines represent their first game, which was Pong. One player leaning in on the other side of a Pong court, like a tennis court's middle line. Yep. Yep. The middle line is this one in the center. And this was supposed to be a player. This was supposed to be a player. It's kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. But it's an iconic it logo. Everybody knows what it Whether is. you knew the origins and the intentions or not, it feels very nice, very appropriate for computer gaming, and it lives on today. As in today, 
we have our shirts on. Yes, both of us are wearing it. the logo still today. Yes, you know, we're, we're very, um, what, what you call it, we're very uh, festive. Yes. Uh, so the brand through this logo has lasted beyond the company mm-hmm. itself. You can still, this is not an old shirt. You can still buy paraphernalia with the logo on it because people love the brand. Absolutely. There is something to be said about a good logo design being timeless. So many entrepreneurs don't put enough time or investment into their company's logo. Uh, Those are the people that don't understand the value of marketing. Um, It's also why you see some businesses have to go back and redesign their logo later to try to capitalize on its Potential. Now, sometimes by the time they get around to it, it's too late and they're stuck with a bad logo. Well, Atari started with working on coin-operated games. Carnival games, skee-ball, billiards, and pinball had been around for a very long time. The, now, the origin of these games go back to bocce ball, um, bocce ball. croquet, bowling, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually they were moved inside. So I'm talking way back when they were still outside sports. Eventually they were moved inside, miniaturized to become, you know, billiard tables and things like that. And I think the first pinball type game dates back to like the late 1700s. So wow. been, been around uh, for a while. Of course, yes. the, only the financially well-off could afford it back then. Um, but eventually... Coin operation was introduced in 1930s, and they started putting it in, you know, pool halls and gas stations and restaurants. And right, like. and these types of games had been successful for decades, and the industry was finally starting to grow due to technology changes. Atari's first video arcade game in 1972 was anybody Pong. That's right, and it was a huge success. That's right. So huge that it's on the shirt. Okay, so Pong is, for those that don't know, Pong is a table tennis sports game that was played on a video screen with simple two-dimensional graphics. Boop, 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 (laughs) right? It was based on Bushnell's thoughts for ways to improve the Magnavox Odyssey's home game. Now, Atari's Pong was not first to market, but it was the first commercially successful video game. Magnavox had the first home video game console, it just wasn't as good. They later tried to sue Atari for patent infringement. That is going to be a recurring Mm -hmm. theme throughout Atari's history. Uh, If they weren't being sued, they were suing someone else. Yeah, exactly. Atari's success with Pong helped establish the video game industry. Atari made several sequels, and others made several games that mimicked its gameplay, another theme that you'll see throughout this story. And Atari didn't help with that. What, with people copying their games? Yeah, they did it too. Oh, of course. If you can't beat them, join them. In 1973, Atari made their own competitor called Key Games as a way to circumvent pinball distributors that were insistent on having exclusive deals 
for the game. They wanted to make sure that if I put this game in my bar, that it's not going to be in the bar across the street. So Atari made several copycat games in order to kind of get around that. So they could promise, yes, you'll be the only one with this title because we're going to retitle it when we we give it to your competition. Well, Atari was becoming strong in the arcade market. So pinball began to give way to video games in game rooms, at restaurants, and things like that. And then in 1975, Pong was made into a home game, and it was, again, a success. Now, Pong was also a test in the market for home video games. Again, Magnavox's Odyssey was not considered a success, but Pong was. And so Atari decided to go all in and they began working on their own system that would make multiple games. Okay. The Atari Video Computer System. Okay. It was the VCS. It was later branded as the Atari 2600 for those younger listeners that may not recognize the original name. Yes, we did not call it the 2600. VCS. <laughs> I did not. But I've never heard of it as the VCS. At that time, to my generation, it was just called Atari. We didn't, we didn't right. say VCS at all. We That's said, true. we're going to play Atari, and that was it. So, interestingly enough, though, at the time that they were working on the VCS, Steve Jobs left working for Atari. If you remember in the Steve Jobs story and in all the different movies that they made about him, he was working on Breakout with Wozniak. He kind of tricked Wozniak into working on it for him, actually. But when he left Atari, he kept his uh, relationships there intact. And he actually met with Al Alcorn. Al Alcorn? Not sure how to pronounce his name. But he was with Atari. And he met with him about the idea for making the Apple computer. But... Alcorn passed on the idea because Atari couldn't afford to enter the home computer market at that time. They were just starting in the home gaming market with this VCS. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's a nice guy. He did introduce Steve Jobs to some venture capitalists and so forth at the time. See the movie. It's a small (laughs) world after all. Yeah, it's interesting how people, you know, throughout history kind of know each other. Mm. Well, the VCS was released in 76-77, and it included a home version of the old key game, arcade game, Tank, and Atari's Jet Fighter, which were combined and retitled as Combat for the VCS. Now, several of the initial home games were based on arcade games. Air Sea Battle was a home version of Pursuit, Destroyer, and Anti-Aircraft all combined onto a cartridge for the VCS. Now, my generation, those of us that played Atari at home, we didn't even know these were old arcade games. We just saw them for the first time as a as they a cartridge, but they were they were kind of repackaged so that they had, you know, several games to put into the the console system. Shortly after the VCS's release in late 1976, Atari realized that they couldn't keep up with the demand. So Bushnell sold the company to Warner's Entertainment for between $28 and $32 million, depending on where you get your figures from. They felt that they needed the help of the larger company and its manufacturing and distribution abilities to meet the demand for the Atari VCS. Now, for those of you that may not know, 
Warner Brothers Entertainment was one of the big five companies that worked in the movie industry, television industry, um, yeah, the record industry, publishing. They made cartoons. Um, all of that will be a little more relevant later. So keep try to keep in mind of of who they were. I just did the uh, that little sound that I made just there. Mm-hmm. That was Nintendo. I'm sorry. My generation. <laughs> that was Mario. That was my generation eking through again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I just know that uh, our video editor is going to be looking at this podcast and he's going to call me out on it. So before Brayden can call me out on <laughs> just now doing Mario, I know, Brayden, I'm sorry. Well, the next year in 1977, Nolan Bushnell started Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater. Yes. Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Time Theater, as a place to distribute his arcade games and capture his target audience, kids. It was also inspired by Disneyland animatronics and a kid's favorite food, pizza. It was like a pool hall for a child, a family-friendly venue. Bushnell had the idea back in 1974 when he was having a hard time placing his games because of the limited arcade space back then. Now he had the money and invested in the idea. And it was a good thing that he did because Warner chose to ignore this little investment, which was technically part of the Atari umbrella at the time. But what they did do is start to making some changes. Uh Uh-oh. So in 1978, Key Games was disbanded Uh and Nolan was fired. Uh Uh-oh. Or quit. Uh Depending on who you ask. But I'm was, not fired, I'm <laughs> leaving! Based on arguments that he was having with Warner's direction. But he was able to purchase back Chuck E. Cheese from Warner. <laughs> so he went down another somewhat relative road and then Warner... Okay, well, we can talk a little bit more about Bushnell and his story, but that's another podcast. Yes. So this one is about Atari's story. We're not so going to talk about showbiz pizza? No, we're not going to talk... Because they're all related. And the, the terrifying animatronic animals. We're just going <laughs> to... We're going to put a pin in that. This podcast is about Atari's Atari. story, so we're going to keep going with that. Also in 1978, a Japanese company, Taito... Taito... Taito releases a new video game (laughs) arcade game called Space Invaders. You guys probably have heard of that. It was distributed by Midway in the U.S., and it was an immediate commercial success, making $3.8 billion by 1982, with a net profit of $450 million, making it the best-selling video game and highest-grossing entertainment product at the time. Adjusting for inflation, the many versions of the game that are estimated to have grossed over $13 billion in total revenue as of 2016, making it the highest grossing video game of all time. Who doesn't love some Space Invaders? It's, that's a successful game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 1980, Atari ported it for the VCS. Now, ported means they converted the code, right? And the game made the Atari VCS system a must-have console. And that, it being a must-have console, helped sell other games since people bought the system in order to play Space Invaders. So, you know, it quadrupled their system sales. By 1980, sales of the VCS had reached $415 million. Million? Now, back when Bushnell left, step back for just a minute. Okay. 
Ray Kessar took over as leadership for Atari. So he was hired. Remember that name. He was hired from Warner, right, to lead Atari. Now, during his years of, of leadership, with the help of Space Invaders, sales for Atari grew from $75 million to over $2.2 billion in three years. Okay, but while Atari was enjoying some of its greatest success during this time, the change in environment and atmosphere at the company was taking its toll internally. Yeah, let me let me let me say it this way. Everything that was wrong with the record industry that Warner Brothers was also engaged with was coming to the video game industry. These these industries are not squeaky clean, guys. Mm-mm. Under Bushnell, Atari was a creative place, like nerd creative, but creative. And when the corporate giant of Warner took over, well, the cultures didn't mesh very well. Warner was driven by numbers, and nearly all of the original members of Atari Inc. either quit or were fired. Now, there's a famous tale that comes out of that story. The story of the Gang of Four. Ooh, it sounds exciting. In the late 70s, Atari's management set out a memo to the employees, and it listed all of the Atari home games according to their sales as a way to motivate the game designer. So the idea was, this is they our sales, the numbers. make more like the ones that are on the top because they're selling well. However, it backfired. Yeah. Four designers in the company saw the list and said, wait a minute. Wait. <laughs> We're making 60% of the best-selling games that the, the company is selling. But? 20% were being made by employees that had already left Atari, uh-huh. right? So that's the top 80%. 20% of the remaining games were by 28 designers that were not in these four. So, you know, four designers made 60%. The next 20% gone. Right, because they they quit because they liked Bushnell, and then the remaining twenty eight people made right. only twenty percent. So these top four designers realized they were carrying the company. Yes. Got so it. they use this with great as power a way, comes great griping and moaning. They use this as a way to lobby for a raise, mm-hmm. but they received no respect from Kassar. Mm-hmm. Atari had made sixty billion dollars off of their games. Wait, wait. And tell me, how much were the top designers of Atari responsible for these $60 billion worth of sales making a they year? They were making around $25,000 a year Oh, each. that hurts me. Um, we also have to remember that this, you know, in the late 70s, that was more than it is today. But still, compared to $60 billion, a little bit off. Yeah, that's got to sting. So them wanting more money wasn't unreasonable but more than money what they wanted was to have respect shown to them mm-hmm. as the author of the game they, they wanted, wanted credit. a credit on the game and they wanted commission from atari for what they had built they felt the sting from what Kassar had said now david crane who's one of the gang of four recalls that Kassar responded to their demands with, you are no more important to the game than the guy on the assembly line that puts it together. I don't even have words right now for how idiotic that is. Might have been a mistake. As a creative person, it makes me want to bleed out of my eyes. Crane and the other three designers resigned from Atari 
and went on to form their own company, Activision. Activision. Wait, no, not the same thing. They met with a lawyer who connected them with the CEO that was interested in making video games and Activision was born. They were employee oriented, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they just got snubbed by the corporate. They just came right? out of a very toxic environment. So very employee oriented company. And they made it to where, desi- for their games, they made it to where designers got credit on the game packaging. Just like, you know, record artists and uh, people that write books, they all get their name on the packaging. So they wanted the same thing for video games. They also worked very hard because this was their company, right? They kept to what they had learned from Atari. One of the things that Bushnell had taught them was your games need to take a minute to learn and a lifetime to master, which is very important and very different than video games nowadays. Mm. Video games nowadays, I can't get the button straight, let alone, you know, God, there's so much. Anyway, <laughs> Um, and they also helped each other because they were a small company. And that helping each other is what led to what we now call design teams. That was originated out of this concept because one guy would be the lead on the team making this game. And the other guys, because it's a small company, would help him out and they would build it as a team. That design teams happen today because of the success of uh, Activision. Now, knowing that the skills that they had were in making Atari games and in recognizing that Warner Brothers had quite the legal team. They knew that if they were going to continue with what they knew best, games for Atari, they would have to make a new cartridge because they understood Atari's design was patented. They would have to make a new cartridge, but they would have to make sure to design it in a way so that Atari couldn't change something on their system and make the Activision games not work. So the first little, this again, not the only time you'll see this type of behavior in the video game industry, but this was the plan from Activision. Now, of course, Atari sues Activision. Of course. But they lost, allowing Activision to become the first third-party designers for a gaming system. That, of course, is commonplace now. Take that, Kassar. (laughs) Well, also in 1980, while Atari is getting their Space Invaders on, Namco released a new game in the arcade. Anybody know what that's? The new, brand-new arcade game in the 1980s. Anybody? Pac-Man. It was called Pac-Man. The original Japanese title of Puck-Man was changed to Pac-Man for international releases <laughs> as a preventative measure against possible defacement of arcade games. What that means is they just knew that teenagers were going to run <laughs> through there with a Sharpie and change Puck-Man to, to something, something else. else. <laughs> to something else. Because in English, Puck-Man is very close to other words that could end in man. I think and that was some They didn't have that problem in Japanese. That was some good foresight on there. <laughs> so Pac-Man, it was. They changed it to the name Pac-Man for international release. And Pac-Man actually brought in women. It was not overly science fiction-y. It wasn't military. It had a broader appeal. And it was crazy popular. They had merchandise handheld versions, even a top 40 song. It even became a cartoon series. Not to be left out, Atari released Centipede, 
with the same mission in mind. It also appealed to females. Centipede also had a song made by the same songwriter. Yes, let's hear it. Wait. The centipede multiplies and divides and comes after you from every side. Faster and faster, row by row. He slides through the rocks to get you from below. While most video games like Berserk Intruder alert, intruder alert were considered to be targeted towards males, the industry was starting to recognize the benefits of making female-friendly games. We like to play too. Video games were taking over the entertainment world at large. They had a a magazine, Electronic Games Magazine. They had a TV show called Starcade TV Show. And now, Atari originally thought the life of the VCS was three years, but Warner wasn't done with the VCS. Now, remember, Warner was a very successful entertainment company that was engaged in music, film, television, and publishing. I told you that to remember that. This is why. Warner saw video gaming in much the same way as they did their other enterprises. To them... Atari was like an artist on one of their record labels. Once an artist releases an album, the record label will release and promote singles off of that promote album. the crap out of it. Yes, for as long as they possibly can. Before they'll allow the artist to make another record, to make another album. The difference in video gaming, Atari is that video gaming is based in technology. And technology changes at a much faster rate than music. Now, while Warner was acting like it was a record label with releasing singles for their album with the game cartridges from Atari, advances in technology were making their system obsolete. Atari wasn't allowed to explore additional systems or advance in their core gaming console because the games were still selling. And if they were to to make a newer or better system, then the parent company's investment into the VCS would seem futile, or at least not maximized to Warner's way of thinking. Again, a huge culture clash between the two companies. Seeing the success of Apple or other manufacturers, Atari did start making the Atari 400 and the Atari 800 as home computers, released in 1980, but it was a separate division of the company. So at this point, Atari had three divisions, arcade, home gaming, and home computers, and they all worked independently. Then in 1982, when things were becoming obvious, they released Atari 5200 as a compromise with Warner. It was not backwards compatible, so with that, it wouldn't interfere with the VCS resales. So yeah, that was like a compromise with with Warner. We'll make it. We'll make the new system, but we won't allow it to play the old VCS, VCS. games. They also renamed the VCS uh, the Atari 2600. Good idea. I don't know. Well, let's stop and take a minute to talk about some of the industry's good ideas because we've talked a lot about some shady stuff that happened. Are there any? Let's talk about the introduction of co-branding. In 1982, Atari dabbled in in in-game branding with Pole Position. Pole Position was a, a racing game. They had Marlboro, Pepsi, Namco, who actually designed the game. Atari only licensed it. Were 
brain signs in the game. So when you're going down the freeway, you will see these signs best just like you would when you're in everyday life. That was an introduction of game in-game branding, which was brand new. Now in 1983, Tapper was released oh my gosh, by Midway. That was my favorite game. And it was sponsored by Budweiser. So all of the graphics on the outside Budweiser, graphics on the inside Budweiser, the controls were actual beer taps. Yes, I um, remember this. Now later it was changed to root beer tapper. Lame. Because miners <laughs> were in the arcades. Now which one do you remember? Um, to be honest, I remember beer. Do you? I do. Now I, I remember tapper. I see, and I, he was pouring beer. Like, it was gold with a foamy head on it. It was beer. It was not root beer. But did it, it did it say Budweiser on the wall? <clears throat> um, That's the difference. I believe it did. I've always associated it with Budweiser, so I'm guessing that I have. This particular arcade game was located at RJ's Eatery. Uh, shout out, because they're still there. RJ's Eatery in... Um, in uh, those northern suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. And I used to go there as a kid. Gosh, I was so young, I used to have to stand on a chair to play it. You're the reason they changed it to root beer. Whatever. <laughs> I played it so, as beer and loved it. And I still, to this day, hate beer. In 1984, ColecoVision, a home console competitor, partnered to give free Cabbage Patch Kids, <laughs> which were also licensed to Coleco, Oh, they pack. They partnered to give away free Cabbage Patch Kids with the sale of video game consoles to make two kids happy in your house. Now, this happened in '84, which is relative. They were trying to use the Cabbage Patch craze to help the video game industry. That makes sense. Okay, but before we talk about all that, let's take a break. Okay, and we will hear from our sponsor. Alrighty. Straight Shot is brought to you by Reformation Productions, a full-service marketing agency in Atlanta, Georgia, helping companies promote and communicate their business in the most efficient and effective ways possible through straight-line marketing. Find out more by visiting reformationpro.com or call 678-825-8086. Reformation Productions. Think in straight lines. Welcome back, everybody. So, Zachary, yes. we were just about to talk about the giant bubble burst in the industry. Yes, the video game crash of 1983, also known as Atari Shock in Japan. Wow. Where Atari lost $533 million. Jeez. Ugh. Now, <laughs> the crash was attributed to several different factors, including... Uh, market saturation in the number of game consoles and available games, the waning interest in uh, console gaming as in favor of personal computers, uh, but revenues had peaked around $3.2 billion in 1983, then fell to around $100 million by 1985. That's a drop of 97%. That's a big drop. So that's... Devastating, really. Kind of a predecessor to the dot-com crash of the 1990s. So, yes, late 90s, early, early 2000s. Yeah. So let's talk about the factors that went into this crash here. Okay. All right. So details. Yes. Flooded market. Um, one of the details for that was the games themselves. Uh, Atari had lost um, publishing control 
uh, starting with Activision, uh, but then growing to include other companies like eMagic, or iMagic, uh, Apollo, Coleco, Warner Brothers, CBS, Mattel, Fox, MCA. Everybody started getting in on making Atari games. So Atari had lost control of publishing the games. And with the release of so many games in 1982, by the time everybody caught on that this was doing really well, the stores were running out of shelf space. So most stores had insufficient space to carry all of these new games and all these new consoles that were coming out. So as the stores tried to return the surplus games to the new publishers, the publishers didn't have any new product, right? Because they were just trying to jump on the bandwagon. And they also didn't have the cash to to issue refunds to the retailers. So a lot of them just went under just tanked now the other thing that flooded the market beyond the games are the systems Mm -hmm. everybody started coming out with their own atari type home gaming video console system and there were too many systems out there and it became a crapshoot for parents they had no idea what game was what what was better than what was going to make tommy cry so it became very difficult as far as the retail experience is concerned. So another thing that led to the crash was obsolete technology and misleading marketing together. Now, as the company stood by the VCS internally, right, the marketing engine of Warner was running at full speed. Mm -hmm. And Atari was a huge hit in the marketplace until they're being short-sighted with the technology caught up with them. But marketing knew what was needed to capture the consumer's attention and to sell units. And that's exactly what they did. They were selling, 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 selling. But over time, the system could no longer deliver on what marketing was promising. Uh The packaging was misleading. Okay, well, let's talk about the specifics on that. Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples as far as what I'm talking about. Atari had licensed the number one coin-operated video game in the world, Pac-Man. You talked about that a minute ago. And it was so popular that everyone in the world knew the game. And because of that, they had expectations for the game. Expectations that Atari couldn't deliver on. Okay, Because at this point, with the, the, the rate that the technology grows, Atari was old right their tech couldn't reproduce the game that was in the arcades and you know interestingly enough um newer game systems like the magnavox odyssey 2 right <laughs> which was the the second system to the first one that ever existed had a knockoff game for pac-man that was called kc munchkin yeah. Now, it was a newer system, so the technology for the system was better, and it was a better game. However, Atari owned the licensing for Pac-Man and sued them. Again, suing, suing, suing. Now, Atari, when they made their version of Pac-Man for Home, expected the same results that they had received when they licensed Space Invaders. So they made another error. They made... 2 million more Pac-Man games, cartridges, than there were VCS systems in the world. That's an overshot. Because they expected the Pac-Man to sell the system. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. Because people 
wanted it to look like the arcade, and it didn't. I was one of those people. I was very disappointed with my Waka Waka not being like the... uh, Not like the uh, the arcade. Now, marketing for the games was very high end, and it promised great things for the home gaming market. It looked good. It was very attractive. It sparked interest in in the purchasing of games, but it was very conceptual in nature. If you look at the packaging that is on the Atari games, it it doesn't show you what the games actually looks like. It shows you what the game is supposed to represent. So, very conceptual in nature. Now, the commercials that Atari was playing all kept promising that the games were just like the arcade. This is the new Frogger home video game. Ribbit. It's just like the arcade game. Vanguard. Just like the arcade. Just like the arcade game. But, in the end, the system couldn't provide the necessary graphics and gaming experience that the customers expected for it to be just like the arcade. So, this VCS simply wasn't capable of doing it. The graphics and gameplay were well below par considering the consumer expectations and the promises that marketing was making about the games. But Warner kept the marketing engine rolling. They had begun using the relationships that they had in the rest of their big umbrella corporation, right? So so they partnered with Steven Spielberg's movies, E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, through licensing the name of those brands and relating it to games for the VCS. Now, since Atari hadn't been allowed to continue innovation in technology, customers simply stopped being interested in video gaming because they were constantly being disheartened, Mm. right? Atari tried to course correct, but much like the Coke story, it was too late. So the system's technology couldn't keep up. Their graphics and the abilities were becoming outdated, and as a result, while some stores sold new games and machines, most retailers stopped selling video game consoles altogether, or they reduced their stock significantly, reserving floor and shelf space for other products. Another reason was that people began favoring home computers. They had the better graphics and even the better games. Yes, and that brings up another factor that I would be remiss if I did not mention, and that is bad gaming. (laughs) Okay, so not only the graphics, but the games themselves. So since Activision had become a third-party maker of games, a slew of other companies had jumped on board and started making poor-quality games because they were just trying to get uh, their piece of the pie, right? So consumers didn't know what game was good, what game was bad, because there were so many different games on the market from so many different people. The retailers didn't know what was good or what was not any better than anybody else because they also bought too many games. Several were simply not good games, whether because of the graphics or because of the gameplay. Simply, everybody was trying to make games like Atari to get a piece of the video game pie. The money pie. Yes. But Atari was not innocent in this either. So just like they had done with Pac-Man, they overproduced E.T. So they made way too many cartridges because E.T. was the most popular movie. They expected the video game to be the most popular video. But it was popular. So they made it was. For an entirely different reason. However, it was considered by most people to be the worst Atari game 
of all time. That's why it was popular, because it was the worst. It did not sell. And in September 1983, Atari discreetly buried much of this excess stock, as well as unsold stock of earlier games, in a landfill near New Mexico. Now, this was considered an urban legend for quite some time, but has been proven as fact since then. So they literally buried all of these cartridges yes. in the ground. Yes. To like hide what they did. <laughs> Seems as much. Like a little kid when they're like, no, it wasn't me. It must have been somebody else. That's really. So basically, the consumer felt screwed. Right. And lost interest. Right. They didn't take care of the customer and therefore the customer took their business elsewhere. Well, okay. So the entire market was overly saturated, right? Bad games, rip off clone games, ported versions on multiple systems that all look different. That's, that's a, that's a very good point. You could have Donkey Kong in the arcade and then it looked different than Donkey Kong on Atari. And that's one thing. But then you had Donkey Kong on Coleco, which looked completely different. And then you had it on this other system and it looked different. It was very, yes, yes, bad. And, and what you said earlier about parents, you know, not knowing what is compatible with yeah, what anymore. Yeah. Because heaven forbid you buy the wrong game for a system you don't have. But then there was the high pressure hype of it all with the cartoons and the merchandising, the sequels and sequels and video game related movies. Yes, it was as far as pop culture was concerned, video gaming was on fire. So the public was disenchanted with the video game fad. They were over it. The bubble burst. Pop. The stocks crashed. And Atari had lost $533 million by the end of 1983. $80 million in the last quarter alone. We're going to check in with our buddy Kassar on this one. So, Mr. Kassar was in talks with Nintendo about merging with Famicom. So everybody understood that there was an issue and they were trying to fix it. Coleco was like, hey, we have Cabbage Patch Kids Throw in an extra ColecoVision. <laughs> and Atari was talking with Nintendo about merging with Famicom um, to make, you know, a new system that was better. Now, Kassar resigned after he was being charged with insider trading. Ooh. So. I'm guessing he resigned in lieu of charges. He quietly uh bailed out and Famicom became a huge hit in Japan. Now, for those of you that don't know, Camicon was later re-released in the US as the NES, so the Nintendo Entertainment System. So the merger did not go through because number one, Kassar was ousted for being He was a criminal and a for jerk. being a crook. Japanese do not like that. Nope. And the Japanese either. product started becoming a really huge hit, so they didn't think they needed Atari anymore. So Atari was split and sold into two parts by Warner, because Warner didn't want it anymore either. So Atari Games, the arcade division, Warner kept for a year before selling them to Namco, and the Consumer Electronics Division, Gaming and Computers. Yeah, so Warner kept the arcade stuff and then split up. Well, they, they kept it like a year before selling it to Namco, who are the people that made Pac-Man, right? And then Consumer Electronics, that's the VCS that we keep talking about, and also the Atari 400 and the Atari 800, which were the home computers. 
So this was sold to Jack Tramiel, the former CEO of Commodore International. Yes, yeah, so I remember the Commodore 64. Yes, his company, and renamed Atari Corporation. And it was sold for 50 bucks <laughs> and a promissory note of $240 million. Okay, so wait a minute. They Warner couldn't even actually sell the company. They had to loan the Commodore guy money to buy the brand because they knew the brand was worth something. But even even though Tramiel didn't have any money, they loaned him the money, a promissory note. They loaned him the money to buy their own company. That's just strange. Well, there were massive layoffs, and Atari continued to make new products but was losing market share. Now, limping along, Atari partnered with another movie, but this time before its release, right? So they, they wouldn't make the they same mistake that they is. made before. Now, the Cloak and Dagger movie also starred E.T.'s Henry Thomas. So this movie was about a video game that was being played on the Atari 5200. So lots of product placement here. Seems like a great match for Atari, finally, this time, right? Makes sense. And the partnership did yield an arcade version of Cloak and Dagger that was shown in the movie. It was, well, it was actually a kit for overhauling Defender, Stargate, Robotron, or Joust arcade games that were already there so they could kind of repurpose it and rebrand them. But... The home version of the Cloak and Dagger game that was shown in the movie was never actually released. Well, Tramiel, having a Commodore background, was focusing on computers. Yeah, that sounds like a really great excuse. But if you make a movie about a game, put out the game. (laughs) You know? Now, I briefly had mentioned Nintendo. Yes. Right? Which is worth some exploration here. Okay, okay. This is, this is me. It's all me. Yes, you know what Nintendo. Two or three years after the video game crash of 83, Famicom was selling wildly in Japan, but the U.S. markets were worse than shy when it came to anything video game. Yes, they'd been stung. Yes, but Nintendo knew that the game would sell because it was crazy in Japan. So they had to overcome this problem in the U.S. market. Yes, Nintendo renamed the system. They didn't call it a video game console, but they called it a Nintendo Entertainment System. Sold. I'm a so, nice Sold. <laughs> so they had Rob the Robot, which was a companion, and they had a Zapper Light Gun, which worked with Duck Hunt. Um, and this is kind of how they made it not be a video game. It's not. A, it's a toy. Right? We got a little robot. We got a gun. This is a toy. It's not a video game. Well... You people are stupid. (laughs) It worked. Ah, we are stupid. Uh, They also had the the games were front-loaded into the system behind a, a door, like a VCR, where it didn't look like all of the other video game consoles that had come out, because the rest of them all had the game sticking out, so it looked different. Um, so they made that promise. They promised to buy back any systems that did not sell from the store, which was huge. That is a big deal. Um, they also, they, they launched in New York City, which is a huge market to, to kind of test in. So they did these big, huge in-store demos um, to, to launch the, uh, the new product. They, they, based, they had a guy, right, that was out there going, hey, kid, come try this game. 
and then made you know because people weren't interested in video games, but they literally had somebody making people, which is why you started to see that, you know, in later years, see somebody in the store actually getting people over. Oh, yeah. So lots of things kind of happened. The consoles from this. just sitting there for you to play with. The other thing that they did was they packaged their games to actually represent the game and not be conceptual in nature. What? Now, this was better because the games looked better. Is the technology had moved on, the game the graphics looked better than it did before. So they weren't scared to share this is what the actual game looks like whereas Atari was and good. We're not going to show you that this is baseball. We're going to show you what conceptually you're supposed to imagine that you're playing. <laughs> so the games were marketed in the way that they really looked. So the games were also made in a way that could be controlled by Nintendo who had a strict approval process for developers. So they had learned from Atari's mistakes. They they did. And they became a brand staple in, in society. You no longer went home to play video games. You played Nintendo, right? So just like Kleenex or Xerox, they had become a, a brand name that was the action for what they were, they were doing. So they had essentially taken over Atari's positioning. And kids still loved them, and parents thought it was new, so they took the gamble. Yes. Now, you remember I told you that Nintendo had a special system for developers where they could uh, basically lock down and only approve certain amount of games per year, uh, which they had learned because Atari-related games had flooded the market before, and Nintendo didn't want that to happen again. So they had their cartridges had a lockout chip in them, which made it where they could control who they approved or did not approve to put out games. Um, and Atari um, actually wasn't Atari. I mean, it was Atari, but it wasn't. It was Atari, again, split into two pieces, right? So you had Atari games that did um, arcade games, and then you had um, Atari Corporation, which did the home games. Well, the Atari arcade folks decided they wanted in on making games for home consoles again. Again, at this point, Atari is nothing but a brand name, so it gets confusing. But they decided they wanted to get in on making games for the various consoles and actually um, were trying to figure out how to break Nintendo's locked out system, which they did to control the flow of games in the marketplace. Now, the ironic thing is that's the same thing that helped to tank Atari a few years earlier, so but uh, they actually they made another division. They couldn't Atari Games was only arcade, mm -hmm. so they couldn't do anything under the name Atari because Atari Corporation owned that section of the. So they made a so new. Confusing. They made a new brand name called Tengen, which was uh, a, a a Japanese word came from the game Go. Uh, anyway, Tengen, which is like Key Games, is just another name for the same. They started making games for the home systems under that brand name. And they're the ones that tried to get around Nintendo's locking system. They had decided they were going to do this. They made all these games. They couldn't figure out how to get around it. They actually tricked the United States Copyright Office oh, no. into giving them the patented designs for the program so they could backwards engineer it. They, they tricked them, meaning that they told them that they needed it. They told the copyright office that they needed it because of uh, some litigation that they were going to pose against 
um, Nintendo, uh, which didn't really happen. They just got it so that they could backwards engineer and figure out a way around it. Of course, as soon as they found out how to get around it, what do you think Nintendo did? They sued them. <laughs> because that's what we do in the video game industry. Now, speaking of suing people, in 1992, Atari lost an antitrust lawsuit against Nintendo. That same year, Atari was releasing the Jaguar video game system as competition for Nintendo. However, that system, the Jaguar, was twice as expensive as Nintendo. No, thanks. Uh, it was it was an impressive game system, but it was just uh, too expensive. So, basically, Atari was reaching the end of their legacy as a company. Well, after that, Atari was merged and sold multiple times based on the brand legacy. The property owners have been re-releasing and putting out new games under the brand name over the last several years that followed. In 1994, Sega Game Systems invested $40 million in Atari in exchange for all the patent rights. And in 1996, the new Atari Interactive Division failed to revive the company, which was taken over by JTS, a maker of computer disk drives that same year. Two years later in 1998, JTS sold Atari assets as intellectual property scraps. All copyrights, trademarks, and patents were sold to Hasbro Interactive for $5 million. So the important thing to realize here is that what they're really selling is the brand, right? All of this is possible because of the brand recognition and the legacy of the company. So when Hasbro buys the Atari name, it's still Hasbro running it right? They're just using the brand name. So they spent $5 million on their name because their name had that much value. Same thing, 1996, when they, when they sold to JTS, JTS was buying the name. Sega spent $40 million for the name. Well, not only for the name, but also for the rights to the old, the older games. But the important thing to recognize here is how much value that name had. Well, on September 26th, 2017, Atari sent out a press release about a new Atari VCS. Hey, it's my time! Which would tout new details about the console. But to date, it has not happened. It has not. Um, it The system looked great. I don't know if they just didn't have enough investment or what. It has it's not. As tease. of today, it has not happened. It's a giant tease. <sighs> but... Here's another interesting thing. On January 27th of 2020... Wait a minute, that's not That was like yesterday-ish. Yeah. <laughs> Atari announced a deal with GSD Group to build Atari Hotels. Hey, Hard Rock has hotels. Why not? Why not? With the, the first breaking ground uh, in Phoenix in the mid-2020, uh, additional hotels are also planned in Las Vegas, Denver, Chicago, Austin, Seattle... San Francisco, and San Jose. But again, you know, the success of the brand is what made all of this uh, possible. The company, the true company, is no more. Okay, Zachary, tell me, what did we learn from the story of Atari? What are some of the lessons that we can pull from their tale here? Um, well, there's, there's, there's several. Um, and the, the first one that I, I, I just said, and that is branding works. Even today, 
the Atari brand has huge value. They've now been traded on the brand for longer than they've been traded on their products as an actual company. Um, if you think about it, if Coca-Cola was to go out of business today, Pepsi or RC Cola or somebody would buy the name for an unbelievable amount of money because of how much value that name has, and then they would put out products under it. That branding is what did that, right? So that's that's the number one takeaway from uh, from this. Um, other things that stories that you can get is um, you see that Atari was repurposing in their story. You could see that they were repurposing older games on a regular basis. So they would uh, take old games that were um, near their expiration date in the arcade and repurpose them onto the home console market. That's very smart. They would also do this with newer games that came out, even from other manufacturers. Pac-Man had come out and was an arcade game for a while. Space Invaders had come out and was an arcade game for a while. Then they licensed it for the home system and was repurposing those games, uh, which, again, very smart as far as production and efficiency uh, goes. And uh, as far as people liked those games, so they were just making it where people could get what they liked in a new way. Uh, so that's another one. Um, another thing, as far as being a warning is concerned, is um, you need to think about culture and control before you sell the majority ownership of your business to someone else. Uh, so think all the way around the agreement. Um, Nolan Bushnell made Atari, and then he lost it. Um, Steve Jobs made Apple and then lost it, but he got it back again. Okay, So again, I understand everybody needs financial help from time to time, Look all the way around that agreement. Don't don't go in backwards. Look all the way around it. Um, the next piece that I would say is that um, marketing is a very powerful tool when done correctly. Um, the mighty Warner marketing engine made Atari a lot of money, and it labeled Atari as the video game leader, which is what led them to become the icon that they are today. But... Make sure that you're staying true to who you are and what you're capable of. That marketing engine that was doing so well was promising things that operations couldn't deliver on, and it kind of backfired on them. Um, now, I won't go as far as blaming marketing for that, but there was a disconnect between operations and marketing that uh, should have been dealt with um, sooner. Another thing I think that really comes out of their story is to remember that always in business you have at least two audiences, right? You have your main audience, uh, which is whoever you're selling to, but you also have to take care of your internal audience as well, your employees, right? Um, Atari was bitten by this when leadership had a disagreement with the top few game programmers, the employees left and started Activision. Now, Activision became the first third-party developer. And if for, if you don't know who Activision is, but you know Atari, the games like Chopper Command, River Raid, P 
Pitfall, you know, all the games that were better than what Atari was putting out, they were made by Activision. And this contributed to the downfall of Atari and eventually the entire industry for a time in the, anyways. Game innovation had stopped at Atari and innovation was something that that company was built on. So when new leadership didn't want to invest in game innovation, the top designers took up the mantle and did it on their own. So make sure you take care of your, your, core, your core people. Um, another thing I would say is, and this falls right in line with the, the same sort of thing, keep up with the trends that are in your industry. Um, Warner, well, video game industry, industry was brand new. So Warner didn't know anything about video game industry. They were trying to relate it to what they did know. Um, but now that in hindsight where we can see that, keep up with the trends that are in your industry. Um, continue to uh, advance in technology and hardware that supports the needs and desires of an ever-changing uh, marketplace. It's very important to to kind of stay up on, on all of that. And then the last thing that I would say, I think it's the last thing, is to learn from the experiences of other people. We spend a lot of time here talking about the lessons of these big, huge brands that everybody's heard of so that you can learn from their experience. Now, after the demise of Atari, Nintendo renewed the home video game marketplace, which was put away, gone, a bad word, right? But they had learned from Atari's story. They put out their own gaming system, the Nintendo Entertainment System, NES, but they continued to reinvest and innovate their core product in addition to game development. Uh, they did both. So the NES gave way to the Super Nintendo, which was succeeded by the Nintendo 64, then the GameCube, and then the Wii, and then now we have a Nintendo Switch that my son plays on in the house. So this was all industry-level course correction based on the history of their predecessor. Now, Sony, PlayStation, did the same thing. You have PlayStation, PS2, PS3, PS4. There'll be a PS5, I think, later on this year. Always innovate. Always stay current, stay relevant with what's going on, because especially in technology, it moves, 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 and you kind of have to stay on uh, on top of things. Okay. All right, guys. Well, that is our show for today. He's here for a toy. Okay. The exploration and the rise and fall of Atari. We hope that you were able to learn from the lessons showcased today. Um, and as always, like and subscribe wherever you experience our podcast. We are in the development. News, news. Boop, 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 boop. Yes. We are in the development of a new series for you coming soon called the Small Business Startup Series. So follow us on social media or get signed up for notifications by sending the word reformation, reformation, to the to text message number 90210. Yes. Until then, guys. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast informative, we hope you'll pass along our web address, straightshot.net, to your friends, colleagues, and business associates. And please leave us a positive review on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash straightshot. If you would like to have your question featured on the show, 
or would like to be a guest, call 678-825-8086, extension 300. Or you can email us at info at straightshot.net. Be sure to download the Straight Shot Podcast app on your smartphone to hear previous and new shows. This has been Straight Shot.